some of you guys know, this is Josh Levine. I am the co-founder and CEO of Private Market Labs. We are a new platform in the small business M&A space, and our goal is to empower the next generation of entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams of business ownership. This is the seventh installment of our Private Market Insights series, uh, which we do here on Twitter Spaces, and we go deep into a topic in the SMB world. So today we have, as you see, a fantastic guest, Eduardo Cabral, who is the Corporate Development Manager for the Obron Cooperative. Uh, they are a unique player in the space focused on acquiring successful small businesses and helping them transition to employee ownership. Today we're going to discuss the unique co-op business model that Obron is working on. Um, so I've got a few, a few questions to get things started, and then we will open things up to our audience. So please be thinking about what you'd like to ask Eduardo as well. So with that, let's get started. Awesome. Um, fantastic. Uh, to get to jump off here, um, just uh, maybe give our listeners a little bit of background. How does the co-op model work, and uh, why is it an interesting alternative to other methods for small business acquisition? So how is the structure similar and different from other forms of private market investing? Most definitely. And, and before I get started, I just want to say thanks to Josh and Private Market Labs uh, for this opportunity to speak on uh, my first uh, Twitter space, or at least to be hosted on. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Obron uh, Cooperative is a uh, worker-owned conglomerate uh, where we hold a variety of assets for our worker owners. Um, and so kind of the key differences between a cooperative and a traditional corporation is that um, we don't just have kind of investors and employees. We also have uh, patrons. And in the case of a worker cooperative, all of our patrons are employees as well. All a patron is is someone who is receiving, uh, who is participating uh, as a part of the cooperative, you know, paying to be a cooperative member and then receiving some sort of um, service and return. And then as, as well, um, the patron is uh, able to receive what they call a, 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 patro a patronage uh, uh, discount or a patronage um, dividend, which is uh, money that is a little bit different from a, a, a regular dividend. It's money that is generated um, from the benefit of the cooperatives uh, and members being together. And so it essentially, um, you know, there's a really fundamentally different kind of business model because we're not just thinking about um, shareholders and employees and customers, but also patrons as well. Um, and so that's probably like the key kind of structural difference. Um, otherwise, you know, we still um, have a very, a very similar kind of uh, incentives in that, you know, we do still have uh, investor members um, that own shares and, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to them in, in, in uh, you know, providing a return. Uh, but the real key difference here is that, you know, um, rather than uh, our only duty being a fiduciary one, we have kind of a commingled duty or a double bottom line because of um, uh, because of the patron kind of members. And I think the other key difference as well is that, um you know, you could have, let's say, an employee um, option pool, right, at, at your startup. And that's a pretty common way to structure kind of wealth and, and the spreading of wealth for startups. Um, the key difference there is that um, each share, you know, is, um, you know, still the number of shares matters that you own, right, versus in a cooperative, mm -hmm. every single person is limited to one share. So that's like kind of the big difference is that, you know, in cooperative, uh, you know, having a share is less of, 
hey, I'm going to, you know, this share is going to accrete in value and I'm going to be able to sell it someday. Um, it's more of a membership token that allows you to vote and then get a, a patronage refund. And so it's a pretty key distinction in that, you know, normally employee options pools, you get some say, but, you know, you're still um, maybe there's other share classes and things of that nature. Um, but it's, you know, we're really um, when you think about a worker cooperative or, or just cooperatives in general, um, you know, you, you should really be thinking about kind of, you know, employee owned um, businesses and how, you know, they might be structured. Fantastic. And so just to, to clarify for, for the audience, because this is something that was really new to me when you and I started talking um, a, a while back. So a patron is typically, so anyone who is an employee of that firm, when it gets acquired, when it gets purchased, has an opportunity to buy in and become a patron. And then other investors in the firm are also patrons as well. Like who, who gets to become a patron? And then how does, uh, how does that work sort of from the financial structuring perspective? That's a great question. And so typically in a cooperative, the patron is whoever is receiving the, the service, right? And so, you know, what we at Obron, what we see as our business is employment, right? Um, and so uh, interestingly, um, you know, when we think, so our, our investors, um, they do have a share in the business. You know, we sell preferred equity shares, things of that nature. We have kind of, um, you know, depending on how much money we're raising, we, you know, can have up to a certain number of uh, investors on our board, you know, but the key difference is that, you know, um, the investor, while they might have a share of the business, you know, might, they might be an investor and a fiduciary of the business, you know, um, depending on how the cooperative is structured, they may or may not be a patron, right? Um, in that they're, they may or may not actually be re receiving a service. And then also they may or may not be um, you know, getting a vote. Um, at Obron, how we function is that um, uh, that uh, investor uh, members um, can have a vote, um, but it's kind of a special process to get those investor shares issued rather than uh, a normal membership or normal patron share um, is, uh, you know, any member of, like you mentioned, any acquisition that we make, any employee that is of that business can become a patron of Obron Cooperative and become a member um, and have not only, um, uh, you know, the, the patron uh, discount, or sorry, the patron uh, dividend, but then also um, uh, getting the, the voting uh, uh, privileges, essentially. Got it. Okay. And so in terms of when you say, when you say receiving a service, are you talking about a service provided by the cooperative in terms of shares of ownership within that cooperative? Or are you talking about like service as in a benefit of the operations of the company? Just to, just to clarify. Great question. Yeah. It, it's more of the latter. It's, uh, you know, the, um, it's the, the benefit, um, you know, accrued to, um, uh, you know, to the, it's a, it's a benefit that is accrued, um, essentially, um, by being a member of the cooperative. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, would you mind repeating the question? Um, yeah, no, you're, you're talking about sort of a patron is someone who receives a service. And so I guess I'm trying to sort of define as we, as we get started here, kind of, okay, so patrons are people who receive a service, a service tends to be X. Yes. Is just kind of where I'm headed with that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you again. So traditionally, right. So one key distinction to make is that there's worker owned cooperatives and then there's just cooperatives, right? If you think about REI, if you think about, um, 
uh, uh, if you think about ACE hardware, right? Mm -hmm. These these are all actually different kinds of cooperatives. Um, And in a traditional cooperative, you know, the patron refund goes to someone, you know, let's say I'm buying corn from my farming cooperative, right? And because I'm, you know, uh, buying corn from this uh, cooperative, um, they are able to actually negotiate lower prices because they have enough members. And, you know, rather than that, you know, difference, right, in terms of what I've paid to the cooperative and what they're able to source their, their um, you know, materials at, that difference rather than it going as some sort of, you know, dividend to the owners, quote unquote, owners of a corporation, it goes back to the members of the cooperative as essentially a refund, right, or, or some gotcha. sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of payment. Um, and so in a worker-owned cooperative, it's a little different, right, because um, the thing that we're contributing oftentimes is time. And the thing that we're getting back is a payment, right? So mm-hmm. there's not the, – the, the, you know, generally in a cooperative, the patron uh, dividend is like a refund that is um, accrued um, under the management of the business, um, you, sorry, of the cooperative. And, um, you know, whatever kind of shared benefits are accrued are then given back to the members versus in a worker-owned cooperative, we're very much so a uh, – you know, we how we make money, at least today – is by managing assets, right, and holding these assets. And mm-hmm. so, in our situation, a uh, patron uh, dividend or refund works a lot more like a dividend check, right? It's going to be a, probably a share of any excess profits that are generated by the underlying businesses. Uh, but you know, Obron, we see ourselves as you know a worker-owned cooperative rather than a conglomerate of cooperatives, because ultimately, you know, kind of like any platform or many platforms, our goal ultimately is to make um, excess money and excess uh, profits by servicing our patrons, right? And so, for example, you know, when you're, a, you know, think about the benefits of business ownership and how they apply to any small business owner, right? Uh, oh, I went, you know, and got meals or I went and bought a car and I'm using it 50% for, you know, um, you know, uh, for business, 50% for pleasure, right? In a normal, um, you know, if I'm an employee in a normal situation, uh, I would have to be um, either given a company car or, you know, be getting some sort of reimbursement. Um, but as a co-worker slash co-owner of the business, there could be situations where, you know, your personal expenses are the business expenses and will help you um, kind of optimize that. Um, and essentially the benefits that we're going to be generating are kind of um, tax benefits from, um, you know, optimizing folks' uh, expenses but then also we're going to be benef- uh, generating benefits from um, financial management, right? And so the idea being that, you know, 300 people coming together, they can probably borrow money more cheaply than they could on their own, right? And so one of our goals is eventually to have a financial layer that sits on top of what we do and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and let basically, um, you know, uh, our business be the business of managing our members, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, the assets that we hold have kind of a dual purpose, right? One is stability to have those cash flows to keep the lights on, keep wages going. But two, really, it's a vehicle by which we're going to be increasing our membership writ large. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so um, maybe before we kind of finish up, and I know I, I said just some additional questions and I love want to get into them, but just to tie a bow on this piece, um, do you mind giving just a quick little example of, you know, hey, this is a kind of business that we've acquired with this model. This is how the profits were distributed to the employees. So whether it's a real life example or um, a theoretical example, something like that would be would be helpful. 
Most definitely, right? And so we we just completed an acquisition in Hawaii uh, this year. Um, uh, the, thank you so much. Um, it was uh, our first acquisition of a Kaiser Permanente vendor. Um, relatively small deal. You know, we're targeting small business uh, small businesses. You know, kind of um, enterprise value of like three to five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the big things that I haven't mentioned yet is that one of our kind of key advantages is that. Um, in, in the tax kind of world, when you sell a business to your employees or sell to a cooperative, you get to keep all that money tax-free as long as you reinvest it into American stocks, um, qualified rep- replacement properties. Um, and so, um, you know, we've uh, essentially, you know, what we do is we went to this owner, we figured out the valuation of the business, and we went and took debt to, to, borrow, uh, to buy the business. Um, because of this tax benefit, we're able to borrow less, right, than we we would uh, otherwise. Um, and then from there, you know, as we're managing the business, um, you know, the, the our number one priority isn't necessarily profit, right? Our first priority is debt service, and then our second priority is essentially looking at all of our new members and saying, you know, how do we optimize their income, right? Because for us, you know, what is the point of a dividend benefit, you know, dividend check? If folks aren't getting paid a living wage already, right? So the idea is, you know, our shareholders are our member owners, and so our first duty is to make sure that our member owners and our, you know, our shareholders are getting paid um, a fair wage. Um, because ultimately, it's, it's twofold. One, it's a strategy in terms of, you know, incre- improving retention and 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 um, uh, you know, improve, improving our ability to recruit. But then two, also the idea is that once you have this baseline. Uh, you know, set where where everyone's needs are getting met, then any excess profits essentially can be, you know, democratically decided as, is this something that we use to reinvest into the business? Or is this something that we um, are going to go and uh, use as a dividend? Right. Um, and so for this first year at CCH, um, you know, our, our goal is to make sure that the business stays stable and that we can pay off the, the debt repayments. And we're slowly transitioning um, to uh, worker ownership, right? So, you know, the, div- the the dividend check is only one tool, right, to enable kind of returns for our member owners. And so how we kind of see it is like, you know, step one, make sure the job is stable, make sure we're delevering the business. And then step two is, okay, optimizing the business so that um, people are, you know, making um, the money that they should be making are then able to maybe make la- larger patron investments into the business. Um, and then, uh, and then we focus on the dividend, uh, the, the, yeah. And so you've got, you know, so let's say your business is rolling off, right? You've got, you know, you're paying debt service after debt service, you have 500 K in profit. Those profits get sort of split and voted on by the patrons of that business of the cooperative. And they will either then get distributed as a dividend or reinvested in the business. Is that how it works? And you're able to do that exactly. at a lower tax burden. Exactly. And and one thing to be clear too is that you know um, we're not a collective, right? So like every every single vote is sorry, every single action isn't voted on by the workers, right? So there is hierarchy gotcha. internally, and so the the folks who would be making that decision as to you know, what is retained earnings versus what is, um, you know, can move a, 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 to be some sort of profit dividend um, is actually the um, the management level um, and the board. So the board is worker uh, elected and the management is then appointed by the worker uh, elected board. And so there is at least one step of, of, of separation where it's, you know, 
it's not, um, you know, folks who are, are focused on being rank and file employees. We want them to be able to stay focused on their job, you know, and, and then kind of the specialized decision of, you know, what can the business really bear is then um, those discussions are had at kind of more of a, you know, uh, corporate level. Gotcha. So this is this is a super interesting strategy, and I know, you know, as a as a reader of you know the Stanford Search Fund study and you know a lot of the key literature in the SMB space, you know, we sort of come to expect a certain uh, people sort adhere to a set number of strategies, and this co-op strategy sort of seems to exist slightly outside of the strategies that were published, you know, in the mid '80s and early '90s about acquiring small businesses. How did you? kind of get into this space? How did you become interested in the co-op model as a way to acquire a small business differently as a way to accrue different kinds of benefits for these kinds of acquisitions? Most definitely. Um, so, you know, I, I came to the cooperative world um, through uh, surprisingly traditional finance um, in that, um, you know, I started at uh, Credit Suisse in sales and trading and um, essentially, my background prior to that had been more on the policy space. And so, you know, I saw the wealth that was being generated by, um, you know, econo- uh, financial actors. And my big question was, you know, what are the policy changes and decisions that we can take um, to make sure that what we're doing here, you know, on, in here at that moment was Wall Street is actually sustainable and, um, you know, generates not just the most prosperity, but like the broadest prosperity. And, you know, my interest in that um, comes both from a kind of personal, you know, uh, ideological feeling, right? Like a, 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 an understanding that, um, you know, people deserve, um, you know, some sort of minimal dignity and respect. But also that, you know, from I, I was I studied economics, uh, you know, as in my undergrad. You know, I fundamentally believe that the more money is that is in the hands of folks that are going to spend that money, the better it is for our economy writ large, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, really thinking about kind of that more marginal pr- propensity to spend. Um, and so um, having been in the uh, finance world, having had that uh, kind of, uh, you know, seeing mergers and acquisitions happening, you know, I really started to think about, you know, um, could, is this something that I could do myself, you know, specifically acquire a business and convert it into a worker cooperative, you know, thinking about doing finance with an impact lens and, you um, you know, started to do searching around it, looked into the traditional lit- literature, you know, realized what a search fund was and everything, and then came across Obron. Um, and so it was kind of lucky um, in my kind of searching, uh, uh, you know, pre-search um, process, I came across Obron. And, and I think the thing that's amazing about what Obron is doing is that, um, you know, it really is providing this kind of platform that provides a service for searchers as well, where, you know, traditionally, um you know, searching is a very kind of interesting process in that, you know, you have one or two years of biz dev, you know, and then the rest of your life you're operating, right, until you sell, right. you know. And so what we've realized is that it takes a really different kind of skill set to, to find the businesses versus run those businesses. Mm-hmm. And and then also, you know, taking the debt out to run those businesses can be incredibly daunting, right? Uh, you know, the personal guarantee on the SBA loans, things of that nature. And so through the cooperative model, um, we're able to uh, essentially match, do, be a matchmaker, right? Find assets that are, you know, uh, well priced and that can, you know, do an LBO and build up kind of a repertoire, or you know, kind of a, a deck of businesses that could potentially be good fits. And then, you know, then we just have to find the social entrepreneur, right? Who is, 
you know, looking to, yes, of course, build wealth for themselves, um, but also potentially looking to, you know, decrease their own risk, right? And, and okay, awesome. I don't have to go through a whole search. Uh, I don't have to take this personal guarantee. I'm still going to get paid a great salary. I might get a little bit less upside because, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who's putting in my own personal capital. Um, and uh, from, from that perspective, I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with the tax benefits, it allows us to enter into smaller businesses. Um, you know, so when we have a roll-up situation, um, once we found that, uh, you know, that knight in shining armor that can help us do the roll-ups, you know, we can roll up smaller assets into what we're doing. Um, and then for me, you know, what I realized is that, um, you know, a lot of my skill set had about been, you know, had come from originating businesses. You know, I'd actually spent two years uh, doing venture capital as well. And so for me, you know, maybe someday, you know, uh, operating a small business could be an interesting kind of mm-hmm. retirement path. But for now, I realized that, you know, I'm really good at searching and finding and, and on the kind of the hunting side. And I have an amazing crew that's making sure that the businesses that I'm finding are getting a good home. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I ended up at Oberon. Um, you know, it was uh, really kind of a, you know, maybe misplaced sense of idealism, <laughs> but then also, um, you know, just networking and connecting with folks. You know, uh, the cooperative economy is definitely something that um, ever since the two, 2008, I think, financial crisis has been, you know, starting to pick up more kind of attention. Right. Um, one of the big fundamental issues, though, with, you know, cooperatives is that the question of d- will the cooperative scale, right? You know, I think so often you see problems of closed shops or, you know, something is, you know, successfully com- becomes a cooperative. And then, you know, the workers vote to fire off the new young guy because he's working too hard or whatever, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's all of these kind of maybe misaligned or misplaced incentives. And the thing that's really exciting about Obron is, is that, you know, as a worker owner of Obron, my number one incentive is to make sure Obron continues to make acquisitions because I know that, you know, any, um, uh, you know, for us to uh, have a bigger patron, you know, bigger um, patronage check to get more, um, you know, uh, wealth into the hands of our worker owners, the ways that we're going to do that is either by having more cash flow or by having more members. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of a, it's interesting in that it, I think better aligns the business in, in that, um, you know, it, you do have the democratic control. You do have the ability to say, hey, we're going to prioritize these values over profit. But then also at the same time, you you have a structure that limits kind of the um, ability for an interpersonal group or a small group to you know be able to dictate um, the, the future of the business and all of the businesses on their own. Gotcha. And, you know, that's that's fascinating. And I think one of the things that has come through every time you and I have spoken is really kind of the way that the finance elements of a co-op acquisition and the social impact elements of it kind of collide and and work together a little bit. And let's maybe touch on that a little bit more deeply in terms of, you know, how has your sort of the way that your mission driving your, the the way your mission drives you forward and pushing this co-op model and how does it sort of extend the financial benefits of SMB ownership to more people? So, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot at Private Market Labs is how do we make it easier for a person to own a small business? And how do we facilitate this process in a, in a meaningful, transparent, and reputable way? And, you know, I think that for you in particular, you have a strong point of view on this. And so I just want to make sure you're able to 
to emphasize that as we move forward. So, you know, how important is that mission alignment and philosophy when it comes to determining whether a buyer is going to be successful or not with this model? Um, that's a great question, you know, and, and it's honestly something that we're grappling with a little bit in terms of, you know, how much is it important for the acquisition target to already have the cultural values that we're looking for versus, you know, essentially the, like a great, you know, place that we can then start carving and start modifying, right? And, um, you know, how, how I think we see it is that, um, you know, so we're, uh, being an owner is a lot more than just, you know, owning an asset. It's kind of a, a mindset and ability to like go through your day-to-day -day, uh, life with some more autonomy and agency. And so we have like a set of values that for every single one of our businesses, when we come in, we make sure to like implement these values and, and, and start, you know, making sure. And so like it definitely, you know, when we're looking at businesses that we're acquiring, it's always great when there's a values alignment there. Um, mm -hmm you know, especially around, you know, individual autonomy or ownership. If we see someone already doing a profit sharing, you know, that's generally really exciting for us because uh, the other key thing too, is that, you know, we are looking oftentimes for folks to do roll-ups with. And so, you know, the existing leadership that we're giving liquidity to, um, you know, we want to make sure that they're going to be aligned with us um, and, uh, you know, willing to start, continue to build this, uh, you know, operation um, towards the goals that we have. Um, and then I, I would say, too, that the kind of the other second key thing that we do, even if we, let's say we right away aren't changing, you know, like let's say we're, you know, you're a truck driver and you're still a truck driver the day after Oberon, you know, buys you, you know, the, the thing that we are, you know, actively trying to do right away, right, is this education piece, right, where, you know, some people just want to be a worker, right? They want to be able to go in, clock out, you know, and, and go home and not have to think about anything in terms of, you know, if the lights are going to be on at the workplace tomorrow. Other folks are looking for that kind of ownership mentality and and and, and want to be more involved with uh, businesses, you know, and so either, you know, we give folks the opportunity to run for the board and get more involved on that level um, or truly, you know, um, we try to encourage folks to, learn more about searching themselves, right? And, um, you know, trying to uh, empower them with the knowledge of, you know, what we're doing at, with these um, leveraged buyouts and encouraging them to, you know, either if there's, you know, a business that they have professional experience in in the past, you know, come up to us and you know, talk to us about it and figure out if that could be a vertical or, you know, if they know someone in their, in their community that is, um, you know, uh, for example, you know, we're looking at buying, a uh, physician's office right now, right? Um, you know, a, 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 I'm sure a lot of those uh, employees could have other physicians that they'd go to personally, right? You know, and that they as member owners, if they could direct us to those targets, you know, we are building in, you know, incentives, essentially, you know, finder's fees and things of that na nature for individual um, member owners and employees as well. So, you know, it, it, it's, a long, it's a long response to your question. But, you know, for us, the, the, the target owner is important and the target culture is important um, if, you know, we're looking for those owners to stay on. Uh, otherwise, you know, generally we kind of try to, you know, we have non-monetary things that we can start putting in place right away that we believe um, will have a monetary impact and in, in, in an interpersonal positive impact as well. And so that's kind of how we see it, you know, trying to thread the needle of, you know, keeping the stability um, since we are doing leverage buyouts and, you know, cash flow is so key, but then also, you know, empowering folks from day one to take more ownership of the business 
and hopefully get more upside as well um, as the business succeeds. Succeeds. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that for that answer. So you know, let's say that you have inspired a couple of people here in the audience to think a little bit more carefully about, hey, I'm you know thinking about a search. You know, maybe the co-op model is something that I want to pursue. You know, I'm going to kind of combine a couple of things together. So what are maybe two things that a person thinking about the co-op model should know when it comes to the financial structures of pursuing this model? And what are the first two steps that a person should take if they're, they're thinking about moving forward seriously with it? Yeah, most definitely. So I think the, the top two things to kind of keep in mind, one is the kind of legal complexity around it. Um, so, uh, you know, Obron has, uh, uh, you know, we, we started in 2016 and a big reason that we were able to start then is because of a, um, a new legal structure that was created in uh, Colorado called a limited cooperative association. And so essentially a limited cooperative association is like kind of synonymous to a holding company, but the holding company is a cooperative, right? And so what that allows us to do is to have a structure, uh, a governance structure in place that is a cooperative, uh, but then go in and buy non-cooperative assets, right? And so um, Obron owns actually non-cooperatives, right? You know, the business and assets that we own in Hawaii, you know, are they sit in an LLC. Um, and so that's one key thing is that you want to make sure that you have kind of the right, uh, you know, legal in- infrastructure put in place so that mm-hmm. you can take advantage of, you know, the tax benefits. Um, you know, the, the big tax benefit being that, you know, you can buy the business and uh, have it be a tax-free, um, you know, transaction essentially without having, you know, the, the selling owner and to have a uh, trust set up or anything like that. Um, I would say then the second thing to really keep in mind is, um, you know, what is the business model that you're targeting and why does cooperative ownership make sense, right? Um, I think eventually, ultimately, maybe all business models could work under a cooperative lens. But uh, today we are still operating in a competitive um, environment, right? Competitive business environment where, um, you know, great. Let's say we do as a logistics business be able, you know, if we're able to raise the wages of some employees, does that mean we're going to have to raise costs, right? And then um, potentially uh, then not be as competitive and lose contracts, right? So like, you know, one of the key things that we're thinking about um, when we're going in doing these acquisitions is is uh, a little bit twofold. One is um, is the structure of the business itself, um, you know, uh, does it you know lend itself to worker cooperative cooperativism? And you know what I mean by that is you know is this a business where there's no key man risk, right? Where um, you know the employees are directly generating a lot of the value autonomously, right? Or is this like, you know, a one man art studio, right? And then like the art, stu- if, <laughs> if we get rid of the artist, like the thing collapses, right? Like, right. you know, and, and of course, like a lot of these considerations, you know, you're, you're thinking about in a traditional search as well. But I think, you know, in, in our search, especially, you know, the magic sauce for us is, you know, creating a work environment that's better than it was before. And so, you know, we really have to have employees where, or have business businesses where the one number one cost driver can be recruiting or retention, because if we can re- retain our opponents, then our costs decrease, right? And that's kind of like you know where some of the key, those key synergies that we're looking for lie. Gotcha. And so one quick technical question, and then I'm going to open up the floor. Um, so the 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 tax 
incentive that you've mentioned a couple of times. Is that a 1031 exchange? Is it something else? Like where, where, what, what is it exactly? Yeah, it, it's called um, a uh, 1042. Uh, um, it, so the, the form is 1042 form and it's, uh, okay. it's um, essentially the same uh, uh, tax arrest code that regulates uh, ESOP uh, conversions, right? So, um, uh, today, if you sold 30% of your business in an employee um, share, um, um, you know, options program, right. Um, you can, uh, you can, you can also, you know, get those tax benefits. The mm-hmm. big difference for us, um, and kind of our key is that, you know, t- setting up an ESOP is actually pretty expensive. And so how an ESOP works is, you know, essentially you build like an internal little buyer in your business that's buying shares of the business and holding it uh, for the employees. There could be huge issues there either from liquidity in terms of like having money and cash to buy those shares and, and, and you know, buy them back when people are leaving or to, um, uh, you know, the problems of valuing the business every year, right. And having that overhead cost. Um, and so, you know, we're able to uh, sidestep both of, you know, both of those issues um, because, um, you know, for one, uh, the liquidity that's happening, right. It's, you know, the assets are being owned by Oberon Cooperative. So there's no share buyback that needs to be happening when people leave. Right. And then um, uh, the, the second thing is that um, there are no, uh, you know, ESOPs by law are required to do these kind of valuations each year. The same regulations don't apply for cooperatives. And um, so that's kind of, you gotcha. know, 1042 exists in the world and mostly in the ESOP kind of context. Um, but you know, we this cooperative model has the same benefits plus um, you know advantages from a kind of structural perspective. Gotcha. No, that's that's super helpful. Um, I'm gonna take a quick pause from my my 30 straight minutes of question asking and see if anyone in the audience has any questions for Eduardo. Um, please uh, raise your hand, and I will allow you to speak. I'm I'm a SMB Capital, so Josh already knows about my first name. So no, well, you actually answered my question. At least the question all along was, how different are you from an ESOP? But you kind of lay out some differences there. But overall, generally, the structure is very similar to ESOP, minus kind of some, some structural costs there, if you will, and then you know, like you said, valuations yearly, annually. But generally, you would say you were kind of version of an ESOP. Is that fair to say? So the, the it, it, I would say there's a lot of similarities. Um, the biggest key difference why why I wouldn't say we're like an ESOP is the control provisions, right? Um, you know, in an ESOP, you can structure it so that you're still the majority shareholder. You're still having decisions for control, etc. In a cooperative, it is one member, one vote. Um, and so that's, I would say, the biggest key difference is that you know, um, governance can be uh, trickier, right, in a, in a cooperative world, unless you have a really good handle on who the voters are going to be. And so, um, and also depending on the structure of the initial board, right, but there is that kind of um, tension there where um, there is much more of a loss of control um, if you're, you know, forming a cooperative rather than selling, let's say, just 30% into a uh, into an ESOP. Yeah, nice. And then generally, and I know it's probably hard, it's probably a case-by-case basis, but what is like a typical equity structure that the that a search might have? You know, sure. Ranges 
skeptics on that. I know it's hard. But. No, most definitely. And so we, we try to kind of um, play, you know, kind of be a little bit boring and vanilla um, in terms of how we structure our deals, you know, um, like max 50% LTV, um, generally, you know, 50 to 75% of the cash at close, um, and then some sort of seller's note. Um, where we get kind of fancy and can kind of have fun is looking at places where, um, you know, there could be kind of synergies from a worker cooperative perspective. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the things that we have done um, or are, you know, do semi often is, uh, you know, re- rather than um, just uh, borrowing from the owner via a seller's note um, or borrowing and putting debt on the balance sheet via just, you know, a typical, uh, you know, uh, leveraged buyout. We've also been using uh, preferred equity and things of that nature. And so, um, you know, having the multiple different structures, um, you know, having a parent company that has holding companies that has underlying assets um, allows us to, you know, depending on, you know, what the um, entrepreneur is looking for, kind of give them a little bit more value than maybe they would have had if they were just looking to sell today. Because, you know, just as a reminder, you know, like ideally for our platform companies, we're looking at 20 to $30 million kind of enterprise value. But a lot of these businesses that we're looking at as well, you know, are, are fairly small, right? Are, you know, 5 million to 10 million top line, five to 10%, um, you know, net income. Um, and so for us, a big part of our value add is that like, hey, you know, we'll give you three to four X, you know, EBITDA um, and you could take it. You don't pay taxes on it. You know, you like you put it in the bank and you'll be able to go retire. Um, and so I think for us, that's the kind of a key thing that we think about is that, um, you know, rather than, um, you know, we are always happy to get fancy with the structure. But more than that, we're just trying to say, OK, what is the true value of this business that you're trying to get for it in cash? And is that something that we can match, um, you know, uh, you know, through our lending right. partners? And then, sorry, uh, last question. The, so the tax incentives for the seller, uh, is that a applicable to most all 50 states? Yeah, uh, great question. So it, it is applicable to all 50 states. Um, it, it is uh, only applicable for S-Corps. So that is a tricky part. You do have to do an S-Corp to, or sorry, like a C or LLC corp conversion to an S-Corp. And the, the biggest thing that I would say, though, as any tax incentive, right, it's most important in California, New York, for, um, you know, places where there are um, there's a high capital gains tax. Um, you know, obviously, but, you know, that's, that's really where we're trying to focus. Um, uh, but hypothetically, you know, the, the tax benefits are both state and federal, so it can apply um, in any state. Thanks for the questions. Hey, you guys looking for me? All right. My turn. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, your turn. Hey, Eduardo, we met in a different context. It's fun to hear you talking about, um, Oprah. this is very interesting. So, um, excited about what you're doing here and uh my apologies guys i'm driving so hopefully it's not too loud but um you start to answer this question about liquidity you know obviously they're being kind of on the cooperative side they're being you being a fund they're being an answer for some of that have you ever seen or are you guys using any secondary markets successfully for liquidity on the cooperative side i'd just be interested in i've always thought that was a, an interesting possibility and i'd be interested to see if you've seen anything there Hey, Adam, so great to, to hear your voice. Um, you know, it's great to hear you and see you in this context. Um, I hope the fund is uh, going well on your end. 
Um, so uh, uh, would you mind explaining a little bit more about secondary markets and how, you know, what you're asking for uh, in that context? Do you mean like, you know, third party equity providers or, you know, are we syndicating out the deals? Like, is that kind of what you were uh, wondering? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there, and I know it would be tricky to swap for this, um, which is why I think it's probably never to look like you guys are doing some interesting stuff. And there is, you know, you guys are being creative and, and exactly the example we talked about sort of the third party equity providers or the equity providers who are buying in from the outside of the property. So I'd love to see if you, or just hear if you guys are seeing that or working on solving that problem. Yes, definitely. That's a great question, Adam. And, and and it's such an important question as well, because once you have a, a unique deployment strategy, um, raising capital as a first-time fund can be so incredibly difficult. Um, you know, like, you know, how are we getting the funds to do these transactions? Uh, it's kind of a, 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 we have a dual strategy. So we have the Obron Acquisition Fund, um, which is our captive fund that we're raising and you know we're really looking for kind of non-traditional investors, right? We're looking for folks who are impact investors who are looking to give us money that we can then in four or five years just give them literally the same notational value back, or just give market-adjusted return, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of foundations that are looking for these kinds of impacts, um, but that kind of money is really hard to raise. And then when you're looking at you know doing uh, four to five uh, transactions a year, it's you know how do you get a big enough fund? And so we've actually had a lot of success. Um, uh, in syndicating out deals, uh, specifically um, looking at kind of social impact uh, lenders. Um, some of our big partners include Capital Impact Partners and um, RSF Social Finance. And essentially there, you know, um, we're, we're, we're trying to build out partners across the debt stack, you know, and so, you know, bringing in senior debt, um, you know, trying to figure out what's the lowest rate we can get there bringing in the equity provider so that we can minimize the amount of money that we're drawing down for our, from our own fund. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially we are having success um, raising this LBO money, I think for a few different reasons. One is that there's a hard asset, you know, or not a hard asset, but there's an asset there that um, generally has been around for 30, 40 years. You know, it's very boring, quote unquote. And so, you know, lenders are more likely to lend against it. Um, and then I, I would say, uh, um, that you know the other kind of um, key consideration is that uh, we do have a social impact um, provision, um, and so when the folks are lending to us or when these lenders are you know giving us money, um, we're able to uh, rather than having you know LPs that are expecting twenty five to thirty five percent plus IRR targets, right? Um, we have m much lower kind of um, uh, mandates on IRR, and so that gives us way more flexibility in terms of not having to take on as much debt in order to achieve our IRR targets. Um, and so that, again, allows us to be a little bit more conservative um, when deploying capital. Um, but I, I would say that our real secret sauce has been, you know, this, um, that LBO plus the impact, and then honestly, plus the, our ability to recruit, um, uh, you know, uh, folks to step into the business. Um, I don't think we'd been, we'd be able to, get the LBO funds that we've been able to you know, receive without either A, the owner staying on and, and kind of leveling up with us, or B, um, us being able to recruit in uh, a really high level kind of uh, someone who could basically do, uh, you know, kind of a search and acquisition on their own, but is willing to not do it for the you know, lower risk of doing it with Obron, um, even if that means like slightly lower income. So we are, this, this uh, has really flown by. I think this has been one of our 
uh, longest running conversations. And it's because there's just so much interesting stuff to cover. Eduardo, thank you so much for, for coming on with us here. Um, this was fantastic. It was fascinating. And it was great to learn uh, a little more about all the great work you're doing at Oberon. We are so proud to be a partner of yours. And um, so, so thank you again. And um, I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, congratulations to what you and Titus are building at Private Market Labs. You know, um, a key part of our, or at least my vision, is to try to make it more clear to more people uh, as to how they can be, become owners. And, you know, the brokerage world is so fragmented that having one place that you can go to is so key to, to like, lowering that barrier to entry. Um, so just really grateful for what you guys are building and, you know, excited to see the, the economy that is to come, you know, because we do have, I think, trillions of dollars worth of assets in the hands of folks that are, you know, looking to retire. And I think yep. we do have a lot of young folks that are looking to, you know, to, to level up their careers. So kudos and thank you for what you're building.